Hey, it's Drex from This Week Health Cyber and Risk Community, and I want to invite you to our next webinar. It's going to focus on what else? Defending health data. I'll be chatting with experts from Rubrik and Microsoft. Register right now at thisweekhealth.com slash rubric webinar. That's all one string, R-U-B-R-I-K webinar, thisweekhealth.com slash rubric webinar. See you online soon. Today on This Week Health. The need for the data to be suitable for building out those machine learning and AI models. It's got to be clean. It's got to be trusted. The deal with AI and machine learning in healthcare, it can't be black box. And honestly, it really can't. The clinicians have to be a part of the process from both the data acquisition, the data cleansing, feature selection, model build. And they've got to be part of the process as you're building out the model. They've got to understand and they need to be able to put some input. I'd rather have less false negatives, and I can deal with some false positive. It's Newsday. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First who are our Newsday show sponsors for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. All right, it's Newsday, and we are getting close to the end of the year. And we have Charles Boise in the house with ClearSense. Charles, how's it going? Hey, everything's good, Bill. Good to be back with you. I saw that you just spent some time in India with the team over there. How did that go? It went really well. We've got about 35 developers in, in Hyderabad, and I've been going back and forth to India for probably about 15 years now. So the difference in India, Bill, is that we can put applications out there in healthcare. There's very limited regulation, and they're really eager to try new technologies out. And you don't have to go through the months of red tape that you do here. No, that's fantastic. And I saw you uh, dancing on social media, which we've all been there. We've all been at those uh, team building events where they say, okay, get up and dance. And we're thinking, well, maybe I... I just received a phone call. Maybe I have to step out. Maybe, <laughs> But no, yeah. you were a good sport. You hung in there. You uh, did the dancing. And then, of course, your head of marketing put it out there for all the world to see. Of course. Costner did Dances with Wolves. I do Dances with Difficulty. So, uh, <laughs> was. That was about the best I could do. Yeah. Oh, man. It is, it is what it is. So we were going to try to do, and we'll actually, we'll start with this topic. We were going to try to do this as our first interview for This Week Health in the virtual world. And we're actually going to do a an interview where you and I both went into VR, into the metaverse. We met up there and we were going to record our first interview there. I Quite frankly, I'm just too busy to set aside the time to get everything all set up. But the next time around, you and I are going to do that. That's a little precursor or a little teaser for what we're going to do in the future. But let's talk about it. So you and I are early adopters. Your class is probably full like mine is of different watches and different sensors that you've tried out and whatnot. But now we both have headsets. I've got this one right here, right on my desk. And... Uh, I'm searching for what the business application and what the healthcare application is going to be. What's your first take? I mean, you've, you've been in this probably sure. a little longer than I have. Probably the, the first thing is that in the virtual world, I look so much more like Brad Pitt than <laughs> I do in the real world. 
Yeah, because you you design your avatar however you want to design your avatar. Yeah, it's pretty pretty amazing. So yeah, there's a whole different world out there. It's not necessarily an escape, although it is for some. I think there will be some practical uses for it at some point in time. I think from a training perspective, I think there's a lot to be said for using that environment from a training perspective. Yeah, um, the killer app right now is education. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, during lockdown in, in India, all education was provided by conversational agents, bot technology, as well as VR. And it was extremely effective. Very, very effective. In addition to training, as we spoke, meetings are pretty cool in a VR world, in a virtual world as well. That's not quite as developed, but as it gets more and more developed. Also, if you think about, you know, you remember back a few years ago, uh, Google came out with these interesting glasses and whatnot. Google glasses, yes. That really showed us that this is going to be a trend going forward, not necessarily trendy. And I think what you just showed is a little bit too clunky, clunky to be relying on it 24-7. I think there needs to be some more work done there. But I think we're getting pretty close to it. Yeah, it's it's a couple things there. One is it's really interesting to me. Whenever you look at technology, what you have to imagine is unlimited bandwidth. You have to imagine unlimited miniaturization and unlimited processing power. And, and, co and cost, Bill. Yeah, and cost gets driven out, right? So right now you can get a a headset for about 400 bucks, but you know they're climbing a little bit in terms of things they can do. If you drive all those things in, then it's not this big old headset that's sitting on your head. It is a pair of glasses that has augmented reality or virtual reality, depending on what you're trying to do. I got one for my birthday and I was trying to figure out what the business application was. What's the application where I go out and buy one for the 10 people that are on my staff? And I didn't really come up with it yet. This is still really early on, but what I was looking for is when meetings become better in virtual reality than they are via Zoom. And we're not there yet. Okay. But the, th the thing where it does excel is education, right? So the example I keep giving, I give two examples. One is, hey, today, open your books. We're going to study King Tut's tomb or open your books. We're going to study the Holocaust. As opposed to, hey, That's put on your VR headset. We're going to walk through King Tut's tomb or we're going to walk through Auschwitz. I mean, they have completely different engagement scores, completely different retention scores, I mean, if you walk through Auschwitz, I guarantee you, you're going to remember your study of the Holocaust as opposed to reading something in a book. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what they found was the systems in India that they utilized were able to give extremely granular reports on the individual students and how well they were doing, even much more so than the teachers in the classroom. So it was, it was a really good experience for them. We talked about some of the limitations. It's a little clunky now. It's a little big. The software is still early stage in a lot of cases. It's still interesting. I mean, whenever I have somebody over to the house, I put it on and they just look around and they're like, oh my gosh, this is, this is unlike anything I've ever seen before. So it's not like the software is pixelated or anything to that effect. It's, I mean, you could stand on the top of Mount Everest and do, oh, a, th yeah. do, a, th do a 360. It's pretty pretty amazing that way. But the, the, the software interaction is still a little pretty, bit 
clunky. Yeah. And Bill, I've been doing this for almost 10 years now. And even in the early days, we would simulate, we would, of course, we'd have everybody wired up and monitor them from a physiological perspective. And one of my favorite simulations were bringing somebody up in a balloon and then dropping the bottom of the basket and simulating a free fall and then just monitoring their their heart rate respirations and, and so <laughs> that's forth. just mead yeah. so a lot of that early stuff was a, was a lot of fun or we would horizontally and then simulate them flying through the milky way and whatnot which was kind of interesting yeah your body does react it does as if it's actually happening and that's one of that's one of the applications to healthcare. Obviously, we talked about education. That is one of the primary applications to healthcare, both on the HR side, on the onboarding side for nurses, on physician training in the future and whatnot. That's the killer app right now. But also in the care of patients, we saw this at Cedars, where there's a couple of startups that are using VR to patients that are bedridden, giving them the opportunity to go outside, yep. and your body physiological response is, I was just outside. It's really kind of interesting. It is. It absolutely is. So a lot of a lot of healthcare application as we move forward, and you and I will keep a, a close tabs on that, but are, hopefully coming out of the new year, I'll have some time to play around and, and we'll get the next interview. You said a phrase here, trend versus trendy. And first time I heard you use that phrase, what spurs you to start talking about trend versus trendy? We see a lot of trendy things in healthcare that kind of go away, especially on HIT. And I'll have to give one of my colleagues, Amy Webb, the credit for this terminology. And she's a futurist. She has an institute and everybody can look her up and very, very interesting. She puts a report out every year that's several hundred pages. Healthcare is, is part of that. So something that's trendy. So going back as far as seven, the concept of a flying car comes up every 10 years. Is that ever going to happen? Most likely not, if you think about it. So every 10 years, we're going to see a flying car. Are we going to get wide adoption? Absolutely not. So I always use that and she uses that as an example of something that's trendy. Something that's a trend, we saw this very early on with initially with Uber. Airbnb, where you now have the control, there's no longer any travel agencies, right? There's no longer, you don't have to stand on the street corner and hail a taxi now. Even the taxi services have, have adopted this Uber type experience and whatnot. We're even seeing that in healthcare, right? I think that is an absolute trend that will will continue. Will the VR thing be a trend or something trendy? I'm going to say it's going to be a slow process from a, a trend perspective. Yeah, I'm I'm more bullish. I think in the next 10 years, well, it, for the people listening to this in the next five years, they will all have put on a headset and be doing something in virtual reality. But I think the, the general population, I'm telling them within the next decade, they're all going to be operating in, in virtual reality. And they look at me like, why would I do that? I'm like, I don't know. Why do you do Zoom calls? Yeah. And they just look at me like, well, it's like, oh, well, that's just the norm. I'm like, yeah, and that's how you'll feel a decade from now. Can you imagine a patient from an elective surgery perspective being brought through what to expect when they arrive? 
through the the whole pre and post op, uh, all of that can be done from a virtual re- reality perspective, as opposed to sitting just like you and I are talking back and forth or just showing slides and whatnot. They'll know exactly what to expect and what's expected of them. Yeah. I mean, we will look in a decade, we will look at this experience, you and I talking via Zoom and we'll think, oh my gosh, how archaic. And that's that's my feeling on VR. Because when you meet somebody in, in VR, it feels like you are in a room with them. You're sitting at a conference table with them. You're having a conversation. Now it's still avatars today. I think that will change somewhat as well. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. Trend versus trendy. You brought up car stuff. So autonomous driving. I think somebody would ask, is that trend versus trendy? And we're seeing enough technology out there that it looks like it could be a trend. But the problem is if a car kills one person, they're going to shut it down as opposed to the millions of people that die every year from another person driving into them. So is that trend or trendy? So here's a, here's my deal on autonomous cars. It has to happen all at once. You can't have a bunch of autonomous cars acting with humans. Just the humans. <laughs> you can't calculate the humans are going to mess it up. Yeah, humans are going to screw it all up. And a motorcycle will really mess things up. So I think it's a, a trend. Will it happen? I think we're quite a, quite a, a long ways off. Because we do have autonomous vehicles out there, but it's still in the experimental stage. So... We we will see. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's trend and I think what you'll see it you'll see it not used in city driving, you'll see it used in long distance driving and that kind of stuff. And uh, somebody was telling me they they used their autonomous uh, it's not autonomous, whatever they call it, but autonomous driving for for our purposes to go from one place to another. And they said it was a lot slower. I'm like, well, why is it slower? It's like, well, you know how we like pull up to a stop sign and hit the brake and we stop. Well, autonomous driving sort of inches up to, it slows down a lot earlier. It inches up to that spot because it has to be more cautious of its surroundings. And because the program can't be as aggressive as we are, it's actually a a slower experience. Now, if I'm going from, I don't know, if I'm going from Kansas City to Denver, you just, you put it on, you go to sleep, you wake up, you're in, that's- Hopefully. Hopefully. uh, Yeah, hopefully. Trend versus trendy in healthcare. Gosh, this is a this is an interesting one because there's there's so many trends going on, but there's so many things driving those trends. All right, we'll get back to our show in just a minute. We have a webinar coming up on December 7th, and I'm looking forward to that webinar. It is on how to modernize the data platform within healthcare, the modern data platform within healthcare. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation. We just recorded five pre-episodes for that, and so they're going to air on Tuesday and Thursdays leading up to the episode, and we have a great conversation about the different aspects, different use cases around the modern data platform, and how agility becomes so key, and data quality, and all those things. So great conversation, looking forward to that. Wednesday, December 7th at 1 o'clock, love to have you join us. We're going to have health system leaders from Memorial Care and others, CDW is going to have some of their experts on the show as well. So check that out. You can go to our website, thisweekhealth.com. Top right-hand corner, you'll see the upcoming webinars. Love to have you be a part of it. If you have a question coming into it, one of the things we do is we collect the questions in the sign-up form because we want to make sure that we incorporate that into the discussion. So hope to see you there. Now back to the show. Hospitals home. Trend or trendy? Oh, that's a trend. Our colleagues in the UK are 
really going forward with this. We'll, we'll follow along. And we do have organizations that are, are working on this. In the UK, it was primarily done for, and it's being done for purposes of nurses and others not having to work in the hospital. They'd rather work in somebody's home. It's much more advantageous. So I think you're going to see some correlations there. The large device manufacturers, Philips and others, are definitely gearing up their product lines for that. And as we get better and better with virtual reality, there's going to be a connection there where folks are going to be able to be monitored and there'll be higher acuities, acuity within the home. But I think I, as a nurse, would much rather do my shift in somebody's home than in a hospital. Yeah, that's a good one. Clinical AI, trend or trendy? Oh, it's a, it's definitely a trend. And our colleague, Dale Sanders, put a piece in recently in, in LinkedIn that's uh, worthy of everybody looking at and really discusses the need for the data to be suitable for building out those machine learning and, and AI models. It's got to be clean. It's got to be uh, trusted. So I think that was really important. The deal with AI and machine learning in healthcare, it can't be black box. It, it honestly, it really can't. The clinicians have to be a part of the process from both the, the data acquisition, the data cleansing, if you will, feature selection, model build, and they've got to be part of the, the process as you're building out the model. They've got to understand and they need to be able to put some input. I'd rather have less false negatives and I can deal with some false positive. I think that's really important that this stuff is approachable and explainable. And the real downfall with AI and ML in, in clinical practice is we as humans can make mistakes, right? And we're forgiven. The machine gets one shot at it. And I think the other thing that is really important, these, these models, one, have to be tuned to the demographic. What works in Florida, where we are, is probably going to need to be tuned in New York City because the, the demographic is, is much different. And you can't just deploy these things and walk away from them. They actually have to be monitored, tuned as time progresses. Charles, I was struggling. I'm trying to come up, come up with something that I think is trendy in healthcare. Do you have an example of something that's trendy? What is trendy and what we're moving towards is understanding that the future for us is a state of wellness. We're getting there slowly. And what I mean by that, Bill, right now we don't provide healthcare, right? We, we provide, provide sick, sick care. Yeah, yeah, we provide sick care. But as we continue to wire people up, take care of them in the home and so forth, and be able to... That's a that's a trend as well. Everything I came up with, I'm like, that's a trend, that's a trend, that's a trend. This is a little controversial, but uh, now I'll throw it out there. Health equities feels to me to be trendy. Like everybody's jumping on. But And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing this. I, I think we should. But I don't think it's backed by, first of all, a conviction from leadership. I don't think it's backed by compensation models to leadership. I don't think it's... So that's one of those that I think that has the ability to be trendy right now because it doesn't have the underlying conviction and drive behind it that it needs to. It's it's trendy to talk about and everybody wants to get on stage and talk about it and try it out. Hey, here's what we're thinking. But, you know, in order to follow through on that, I think it needs that underlying foundation of uh, people with strong convictions who are pushing it 
who are compensated to do it and whatnot. And again, I know it's controversial to say that's trendy. I'm not saying it's trendy because it shouldn't happen. I'm saying it's trendy because it doesn't have that underlying push. Yeah, you see folks going into it and then retreating out of it, right? They're talking yeah. about it, but you know how much? How much? Yeah. As soon as financial times get tough, it's like, well, we're yep. going to go back to really focusing in on making money. Yep. Yep. No, I I totally agree with that. Yeah. So that's a. I mean, that's a tough one. Conference season is upon us, and our this week health team and I will be at the Chime Fall Forum celebrating their thirtieth year in San Antonio, and we're also going to be at the health conference HLTH in Las Vegas the following week. While at these events, we're going to be recording our favorite show on the road, which is Interviews in Action. And as you know, what we do is we grab leaders from health systems, healthcare leaders from across the country, and we capture 10 to 15 minute conversations with them to hear what's going on, what they're excited about, what are their priorities and those kinds of things. It's a great way for you to catch up very quickly on what other health systems are thinking and doing across the industry. We actually air this on the community channel, This Week Health Community. It's the green one. So if you go out onto your podcast listener of choice and do a search, this channel is also where community members like yourself have been invited to do interviews of their peers. So check those out as well. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Look forward to catching you on our interviews in action. I'm trying to think what else is trendy or what has been trendy. The other one I was sort of toying with throwing out there was interoperability. It's so, it's it's not that it doesn't need to happen. Don't hear me say that, but trendy in that we've been talking about it for two decades. And it's like, if it was a trend, we'd we'd see a significant amount of progress. Yeah. And we're not, we're not, we haven't, although we've created some new standards though, haven't we? We have. Uh, Yes, we have. And we talk about those new standards, but is there widespread adoption where they're actually interoperating with each other? No. All right, Charles, I'm going to go to this post, Dale Sanders. So why is uh, this Dale Sanders, Chief Strategy Officer at uh, IMO? Intelligent Medical Objects. That's right. Yeah. So why is is AIML underperforming in healthcare? We need a national strategic emphasis to improve the quality of data we're collecting in EHRs, including clinical notes and longer-term strategy to collect more data about patients beyond the EHR. EHR data quality is a poor representation of individual patients as well as the population. EHR data quality is not good enough for AIML models to be patient-specific. It is good enough to be directionally informative. AIML can still be valuable to EHR data. If we apply it to accelerate the human situational awareness and hypothesis generation process. That is to accelerate the what's going on here process. To use a metaphor, we should stop trying to use EHR data with AIML to drive the car and instead be content for now, but with simply informing the driver. I'm gonna stop there for now. Let's talk about EHR data quality and its use for AI and ML. I assume you agree with this 100%. Yeah, I do. From a data quality perspective, many organizations haven't done the due diligence from an ontology perspective. And again, it goes back to that building out a model in, in one organization and transferring it to another. If the proper due diligence hasn't occurred from a data quality perspective, not so good. The other thing you talked about, Bill, is you and I can be diabetics 
in a category of type 2 diabetes, but each of us has a completely different profile as far as where we live, what we eat, our exercise, all of that. So getting back to a, an N of 1 requires more than the data that resides within the electronic health record. It requires data that we're generating 24-7. The other thing that he brought up that's of equal value is the clinic notes, all the unstructured data. That has to, to be taken into consideration as well to build out effective models. And I think lastly, this whole term of prescriptive is a problem. Those that prescribe do not want to be prescribed too. But if your models will tell me enough, give me enough information that helps me make a decision, then that's welcomed. But, you know, definitive type algorithms, no, no. Charles, you and I have talked about the data quality and the use of AIML. And I've also had conversations with John Halopka and others. The telemetry data, the imaging data, that seems to be the data that is of enough quality to do AI and ML models on. It's not enough. Right, it, right. Yeah, it, it isn't enough, yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't provide context. It doesn't, all that stuff. And all that stuff's in the EHR. But that's, when you look at some of the models that have clinical AI we're talking about here. I mean, you could do administrative AI and ML. Oh, sure, of course. Yeah. Till, till, till the cows come home. I don't know. But you could do that every day of the week, but the clinical models have to be accurate. And what I'm seeing is taking the ECG, taking the image and whatnot, and literally running those through models that are uh, as accurate, if not more accurate in some cases, than the human who's reading. Like x-rays was an example that was given to me recently where they're applying models to it because first of all, Physicians are—they just don't want to read X-rays anymore. So it's actually a dying kind of uh, skill set, and the machines not only read, but they can identify things that humans generally are overlooking or overseeing. And you can actually lay those things next to each other and say, "Human read, machine read," and you could look at quality over time. I would rather see that as and people consider that as, especially in images, as adjunctive, not necessarily an outright read, but helping pathologists and or radiologists pinpoint areas within those images that they should probably spend a little bit more attention to as a definitive, hey, it's this, that, or the other thing. Yeah, it, it is. It's augmented intelligence, right? So we're augmenting the intelligence of the clinician and helping them. We're re removing some of the cognitive load. These are people who are looking at patient, 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 patient. Their workday is full of context switching. Right, They have to go from this room to this room to this patient to this patient. Research would tell us that the cognitive load of all that context switching is mistakes. Mistakes, yeah. oversight, tiredness, that kind of stuff. And so if the machine can look at it and say, hey, here's the three things you should focus in on. And they look at the screen and go, oh yeah, that is that that is a problem, right? Then you, they could utilize it. That's how I think we're going to see it implemented. The question becomes, how do we come up with more quality models and we need to get better data. We need to be able to validate the models uh, early and often with as much data as we possibly can. And then, as you said, the models are very specific. They're, they're geographically specific. We talked to Michael Pfeffer about this. He's like the ED from 10 o'clock at night to eight o'clock in the morning is a different population than the ED from eight o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. And so we have to, we have to 
normalized for those kinds of things. And then we have to understand that every patient is a distinct set of genomic sequences and whatnot. And so you have to get, we still have a long way to go here. I mean, yes, do. to really tap into this, there's, there's still a lot of work to do. What's the one or two foundational items you'd like to see tackled in, let's say the next five years in order to really set us up for a future where we're tapping into AI? I think number one, we get to the point where we're actually collecting data 24-7 from all of us. I think that's absolutely essential for higher efficacy. So so sleep data, so. food yeah. data, walking, yeah. yep. all of it. Okay. All of that. And I think the understanding that these algorithms, these models are going to have to be basically open source. The idea that this is IP, I think we have to get somewhere beyond that. We just have to. You just can't say this is, I'm sorry, I'd love to show you, but this is my IP. This black boxing of these models isn't doing anyone any good. And we've seen all kinds of failure because of that. So again, from an IP perspective, the way it's delivered, the way that the information is pushed out, absolutely. But the actual models and whatnot really need to be just like HL7, just like fire standards, something that can be shared. I know that's kind of heresy in the- In some circles it would be, yeah, because there's, there's a free market economy. And Bill, this is all math. Math is not patentable. You can call this machine learning AI, but in the late 80s, early 90s, when I did this, we just called it math. One of the stories we were going to cover was Salesforce launches Patient 360 for Health. And we're not going to cover it. But when you talk about collecting all this data, pulling all this data together, that Patient 360 talks about not only the, the clinical profile of the person, but also the demographic profile of the person and some other stuff. Where is all this data going to reside? We're not going to... I, I can't imagine we're going to start putting all this sensor data and demographic data and purchasing data nope. and into the EHR. Nope. Where, where's it going to go? Nope. This is your healthcare data platform. This is synergistic to your existing EDW. It's synergistic to your to your EMR. This is the the data lake technology, the streaming data technologies. This is really this third space, if you will. I've called it for years, the healthcare data ecosystem. So this is really what it is. I don't see Epic or Cerner being able to develop this out in enough time. So Anytime um, soon. Yeah. And Salesforce is launching, I guess, the precursor for housing all this data as well. So we'll see what happens. Charles, day before Thanksgiving, we're recording this. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. And I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. All right. Thanks, Bill. You as well. Look forward to 2023. Absolutely. What a great discussion. If you know of someone that might benefit from our channel from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note, perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to a show just like this one. It's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com. They can also subscribe wherever they listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast. You get the picture. We are everywhere. Go ahead, subscribe today. We want to thank our Newsday sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. <laughs>